Better than that, might go downstairs for Tuttle time at this point. As most of you know, I am certainly a child of the 80s and 90s, and in the midst of that, I never actually saw a full episode of the TV show Mission Impossible, which aired originally in the 60s and 70s, as I understand it. I think there was a reboot in the 90s, but I somehow missed that. But I have enjoyed most of the movie versions of Mission Impossible that have been produced in the late 90s and even continuing up into our day with another installment set to be released next year. In high school orchestra, I even got to play the theme song for one of my spring concerts, and undoubtedly you're now humming it in your heads. If you're somehow unfamiliar with the series, it concerns a secret government agency referred to as IMF, Impossible Mission Force. And the plot of each show and movie contains this line, your mission should you choose to accept it. Then we hear the details of some covert mission to stop some evil plot that will jeopardize the lives of an entire nation or sometimes even the whole world if these guys don't intervene. And the situation is always impossible. The potential obstacles are numerous. The need for precise execution and perfect teamwork is paramount. Then in the movies, at least, we watch for the next two hours and see how these agents, against all odds plan and strategize, maneuver and adjust, and risk their own lives to accomplish this impossible mission. In the middle of the movie, sometimes I think back to that earlier line, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and I think maybe they shouldn't have accepted this mission. The obstacles are too many. The objective, too far out of reach. The inability of the agents is obvious. But of course, by the end of the movies, we've progressed from mission impossible to mission accomplished. Jesus has entrusted to us the most impossible mission of all. He personally instructed a man named Saul about this mission on the road to Damascus. But he didn't present Saul with the words, your mission should you choose to accept it. No, this mission was what God had set this man apart for even before he was born. In Acts 26, verses 16 to 18, we read what the resurrected Lord commanded him to do. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom... I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus is sending this man to Jews and Gentiles, in other words, to everyone, with an impossible mission. It's a rescue mission. Jesus sends Saul to Jews and Gentiles alike who are characterized as blind, living in darkness and under the power of Satan. When Jesus appears to Saul and gives him this impossible mission, he literally blinds him. 
by his appearance. So Jesus is sending blind Saul to open blind eyes. Saul, who lived in the darkness of his own form of Pharisaic Judaism. Saul, who believed he was serving God, but was actually under the power of Satan. The resurrected Lord Jesus transforms that Saul, opens his blind eyes, transfers him out of Satan's dark kingdom and into his own kingdom. That's what happens to everyone who trusts in Jesus. That's what has happened to every one of us who have already begun to trust in Jesus. Our eyes have been opened. We are no longer living in darkness. We're no longer subject to Satan. These words in Acts 26 are being spoken by Saul, now, of course, known more commonly as Paul. And he's speaking these words as a testimony to a crowd of wealthy and powerful Jews and Gentiles together. He's actually obeying the commission, seeking to accomplish the impossible mission right here. The mission to open blind eyes, to set captives free, is actually the impossible mission that Jesus calls all of his followers to participate in. That's the focus of missions. The method is Paul's method. We tell people who Jesus really is, what he's like and what he's done. That's our responsibility. We speak and we pray, asking the Lord to turn the light on to achieve the impossible. This morning, I want to look at ten truths that should fuel our efforts in missions. These ten truths speak to the guaranteed success of missions. Mission impossible will become mission accomplished. Guaranteed. But how does our Lord guarantee our success? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Ten truths that guarantee the success of our efforts in missions. Truth number one, death won't prevail. Death won't prevail. We begin in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, reading from the NIV. And I, Jesus speaking to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The promise that Jesus gives is that he will build his church. And then he mentions a threat, an obstacle to overcome, a potential danger that must be engaged along the way. The gates of Hades. Now, if you're more used to hearing the phrase, the gates of hell in that verse from reading the King James Version or even the ESV there, you're catching the glimpse of a traditional understanding of what's going on there. Jesus doesn't use the word he normally uses for hell here. Instead, he uses the word for Hades. This is a different reality. The reality Jesus is speaking of, the gates of Hades, is simply an image for death. He's promising that in the face of death, His building project will succeed. And that's very, very important for his disciples to get because they are going to die. And he's promising that even though his followers may die, the church will continue. His building project will continue. Death will not stop the construction of the church. And that's very encouraging to remember. 
We usually think of the gates of hell as somehow connected to Satan, and there is a loose connection. But we need to remember, hell is a place that currently, in Jesus' day and in ours today, is unpopulated. It is an empty place today. That's not where demons come from. That's not where Satan is living. That's not his headquarters. Hell is his destiny. That's his doom that we sang about earlier. No one will go to hell until after the final judgment at the great white throne. Well, Satan will go there first. And the beast and the false prophet mentioned in the book of Revelation will go there first. But until that day, hell is an unpopulated place. Hades is simply the place where dead spirits live. And Jesus is simply saying, death, even death, will not overcome the building project that is the church. But there is a connection to Satan here because we learn about Satan's connection to death in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. The writer says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, of course, the word destroy doesn't usually mean annihilate, as though he goes out of existence. But here the author is telling us that the devil, who had the power of death in his hands, has had that power stripped from him, nullified. For God's people, he no longer has the power of death, the ability to strike a believer with ultimate death, the second death, we might say. He cannot bring the accusations in God's courtroom that would bring condemnation against believers. And therefore, his ultimate power, his big gun, is gone from him. It's been nullified. And ironically, that weapon was removed from him by Jesus going through death, entering the gates of Hades, if you will, on our behalf. That power is gone from him. In the book of Revelation, the opening vision, Jesus is depicted as one holding the keys of death and Hades. Where did he get those keys? He took them from the devil when he entered into death himself. So that any believer who dies, whether murdered, martyred, or dying of cancer, of some disease, or of some accident on the road, it is Jesus alone who opens that door and allows one of his people to pass through. Jesus has the power of death now. And I love Jesus' encouragement to the disciples in Luke chapter 21, verses 16 and 18, to hammer this point home. He says to them, you will be delivered up by even, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. They'll kill you, but not a hair of your head will perish. Again, death will not stop Jesus, hinder Jesus, slow Jesus down from finishing the building project that is the church. The mission of building the church will succeed, and even death itself cannot stop that. Death won't prevail. A second truth Darkness won't snuff out the light. Darkness won't snuff out the light. We read these words in John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of course, there the writer is talking about Jesus as the light who is coming into the world. 
And he's using a metaphor, an image, just like you might carry a flashlight into a dark closet when the power's out. Once you turn on the flashlight, wherever it's pointed, light's there and not darkness anymore. Light always wins. And that's exactly what we're seeing in John's gospel. Jesus is the light. He has brought light into this dark world. And he says here that the darkness has not and does not overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome light. By its very nature, light dispels the darkness. And that's what Jesus is doing. Like in Egypt, think back to the Old Testament, the ten plagues. The ninth plague, there was a deep darkness, a darkness that could be felt in Egypt, sent as the Lord's ninth plague of judgment against the Egyptians. But we read in the book of Exodus that all the people of Israel had light where they lived in Goshen. And so for us, for the church, the light shines in the darkness and the dark does not overshadow it. Wherever believers live, wherever the church is present, wherever Christians are opening their mouths about Jesus, the light is shining and the dark will not snuff it out. John picks up on this theme again in his first letter, 1 John 2, 8. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's why the light the darkness will never overshadow the light because the darkness is on the way out. There will come a day when there will be no darkness left. The new creation that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22, there is no more night and there is no more darkness. Light is everywhere and only light. The darkness is already passing away and the darkness is connected specifically to the world itself. Just a few verses down later in chapter 2, 1 John 2.17, the writer says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is characterized by darkness. You and I might think that our own world, this country where we live in this place, it seems like it's getting darker. It seems like the darkness is encroaching, threatening to overcome the light in this place. It won't happen. It won't happen. It cannot. The light will ever shine as long as there are people connected to Jesus who is the light in that place. Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns that around and says, you are the light of the world. John says, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus himself says, you are the light dispersed throughout the world. And so it is that the darkness won't snuff out the light. The third truth we can look at this morning, enemies can't snatch the sheep. Enemies can't snatch the sheep. John chapter 10, the famous Good Shepherd discourse where Jesus is describing himself as the Good Shepherd. In verse 5 he says, A stranger they will not follow. The sheep will not follow a stranger, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of a stranger. That's a promise, folks. The sheep will not follow a stranger. Now that promise grates against our experience, probably. Maybe your own personal experience or certainly someone you know. We all know Christians who have been led astray. We all know Christians who have been deceived by false teachers. We all know what it's like to be convinced of something that we later find out is not true. 
But this promise is not saying that you'll never believe a lie or that you'll never be temporarily led astray. But this promise is saying that a sheep will not permanently follow a strange voice, a voice that leads them away from the good shepherd. Guaranteed. That's a promise, folks. The sheep will only listen to the true shepherd ultimately. John 10, 28 and 29 gives further support to this. I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We normally read these verses as individually, personally precious promises for our security, our eternal security. And they are true for that. But they also apply to the mission. They also apply to the ultimate gathering of the sheep. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Ultimately, the mission can be characterized as a sheep gathering project. How does Jesus gather his sheep? Well, he sends us out to bring them in. We'll look at that in just a few minutes more closely. But here, he's insisting that enemies of whatever stripe, of whatever kind, spiritual, physical, people, otherwise, cannot snatch the sheep out of the hand of the shepherd or the hand of his father. Notice the way he says this. It's doubly emphatic. Get the picture. First, he says that they, the sheep, will never be snatched out of my hand. Now, the shepherd is Jesus, the eternal Son of God. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful in himself. That would be enough to guarantee our security, that he holds the sheep in his hand. And his hand is all-powerful. But then he adds that the Father also has his hand holding on to the sheep. And the Father is also omnipotent. (laughs) And so you want to wonder... You want to question whether you're really safe as a Christian? Whether you're really secure forever? Look to the omnipotence of the Father and the Son holding on to you. That is the guarantee of our security. And that's ultimately the guarantee of the success of the mission. If the sheep are to be brought in and the Father holds them with His all-powerful hand and the Son is holding them with His all-powerful hand... How could you ever dream up a possibility where they ever could be snatched? Where the sheep pen could not be full as it was intended to be. So the sheep, enemies will not snatch the sheep, cannot snatch the the sheep. Fourth truth, sin doesn't rule God's children. Sin doesn't rule God's children. Romans chapter 6 verses 12 to 14 Romans 6.12 begins with a command. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Notice that it's a kind of an indirect command. It sounds like when you read that, he's saying, don't allow sin to rule, to reign. But Paul wrote something that's a little difficult for us to bring over into English it has an, they have an indirect command in Greek where something can be commanded indirectly And in English, we just don't have that. And so we use the word let to kind of bring it over into English, but it becomes weaker when we do that. He's not saying, 
you Christian, don't allow this. Instead, he's saying sin must not reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Sin must not reign. And if you remember in this section of Romans, starting back in chapter 5, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 8, Paul is personifying sin as this horrific queen who rules over a kingdom. Queen sin has dominion. And every human being on the face of the planet is born in her clutches, in her domain. And Paul is saying, once you've been set free from that ruler, she no longer has a claim over your life. She must not reign over your mortal bodies. That's an indirect command to her. Now, it does have an implication for us. What's our role in that? What's our responsibility? And Paul makes that clear in the next verse. He gives a direct command to us. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin, queen sin, as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments or weapons for righteousness. So he's painting a picture of your life as a fortress. And it's a fortress that used to belong to Queen Sin, but now it doesn't belong to her anymore. But you know what? She's not happy about that. She wants you back. She wants to use you the way she used to use you. And so she's going to come knocking on your door all the time. And he's saying here, don't open the door. Don't open the door. She's going to knock on your door and she's going to say, hey, give me your members. I want to use them as weapons for unrighteousness. And members means your body parts. It means your faculties. It means your skills. It means your emotions. It means your gifts. It means your thoughts. And so sin's going to come a knocking. And Paul's saying, don't open the door. And if you do open the door, don't give them your stuff. She wants to use you as a weapon for unrighteousness. And this means, as a Christian, when you sin, and we all do, this is what you're doing. You're committing treason against your new owner. He bought your fortress, your life, your identity. He owns you. He's your master now. And yet she comes a-knocking, and you open the door and hand it over. And let the enemy queen use your body parts, your mind, your emotions, your skills, your gifts, your abilities for her purposes. That's treason. But there's a promise attached to the end here in verse 14 to the Christian. And this promise is not a conditional promise. It's the reason It's the ground. It's the motivator. Why should you obey this in verse 13? Why should you not give over your your body parts as weapons to to queen sin? Why should you not do that? Here's the promise, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You, sin will not have dominion over the Christian. That's a promise. Guaranteed promise, not a conditional promise. If you do the right things, if you be sure that you don't open the door to sin. No, this is an ultimate guaranteed promise. Sin has no claim on you anymore, Christian. You've been set free. You're not in her kingdom anymore. You don't, you're not one of her subjects. You don't owe her anything. And so don't give in. Instead, you have a new queen. She's mentioned there at the end of the verse. Grace. 
You are under grace. He's personifying grace as your new queen, your new ruler. And what that tells us is that the power of God's grace in the life of the Christian is the dominant power. Sin is not the dominant power over you, Christian. Grace is. Grace is stronger than sin. Grace is more powerful and more, well, gracious. The benefits that grace brings to your life are so much better than the not benefits that sin brings into your life. And so the reason that this promise is true is because you have a new master, you have a new queen, and it is queen grace. Sin will not rule, will not have dominion. First John 3, 9 is similar, but more terrifying. First John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I tell you the truth, this verse has been terrifying to me throughout my life. And I'm glad I'm reading it in the ESV. If you're reading it some other, uh, some other versions, it would be even scarier to you because it would li- more literally say, no one born of God sins. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. But the ESV is right here to bring out the present tense of the verb. This is talking about a pattern of sin. This is talking about continual sin. This is talking about unrepentant sin where there's no fight, there's no difficulty. It's just that's the way you live, dominated by sin. That's what John's describing here. And he's saying if you're born again, if you've been born of God, if you're a Christian, if you have a real relationship with Jesus, if you're an actual child of God, if you've been adopted into His family, you don't live dominated by sin. And that is terrifying. When you look at your own life and you see lots of sin. And you know you haven't arrived yet. You know you're not perfect. And so that can be a very scary verse if you take it out of context. First John's letter is very clear that Christians sin. So you've got to hold these two things in tension. First John chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So hold 1 John 2, 1 and 2 in tension with 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God keeps on makes a practice of sinning. Unrepentant, habitual, constant sin, without remorse, without repentance. That's what he's describing here. If you're a child of God, you don't live that way. And this is a guarantee of the success of missions... Because that's what missions is about. Dealing with the problem of sin. Or rather, announcing that the problem of sin has been dealt with. Bringing the good news that the Savior has come. That salvation is available. And what is salvation? But rescue from slavery and dominance of sin. And since the sin problem has been dealt with, missions is all about announcing that. Making it known to people who don't know. And therefore... This truth that is so precious to me as an individual Christian becomes a precious truth that fuels our efforts in sharing the gospel and our efforts more broadly in the worldwide global mission of sharing the news of Jesus' victory over sin in His death and resurrection. Because if sin doesn't rule over God's children, then that means the gospel will prevail. 
And sinners will be set free from their slavery to sin. And they'll live it out by the Spirit's power. Sin doesn't rule God's children. A fifth truth. Satan doesn't touch. And let me tell you, I want you to get this. If you don't get any of these other ten, I want you to hone in right here for just a few minutes. 1 John 5.18. If you don't have this verse memorized, I encourage you to memorize it and own it. Stick it in your back pocket, put it on your bathroom mirror, put it on your car, see it, read it every day of your life until you really believe this. 1 John 5.18 We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Same language as 3.9 But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So he opens again. We know something, Christians, you should... That everyone who has been born of God, all Christians, everybody who is a child of God, everybody who's believing in Jesus, does not keep on sinning. Again, that present tense. Does not live a lifestyle dominated by unrepentant sin. Why not? Why not? He who was born of God, John does something very subtle here. He switches the tense of the verb. And by doing so, he draws his attention to a different person. He first mentions everyone who has been born of God. That's all Christians. But then here, he who was born of God uniquely. And that is a reference to the Lord Jesus. The one uniquely born of God. The one uniquely the Son of God in a way that's different from the way that we become sons of God. The actual, the the true, the eternal Son of God. And yet born as a human. Virginally conceived. Miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's He, Jesus, who protects Him. And Him is each individual child of God. So know this, Christian. Know this. Jesus, the one we just talked about as the omnipotent shepherd, has said it as his ongoing work, present tense verb, to protect you. Jesus, the Son of God, is at work every day, every moment, to protect his children. He's at work in you to protect you all the time, every day. Do you believe that? the outcome is even more earth-shattering. He who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, is protecting him, and, or so that, as a result of his protection, the evil one does not touch him. He doesn't say, does not kill him, does not destroy him, does not harm him. He says, does not Touch him. Touch with his little fingers. Do you get the point? If Jesus, the Son of God, is protecting you, you are untouchable by the devil. That's who the evil one is here. You know, we're very quick to highlight and emphasize the work of the devil when something goes wrong. Technology breaks down. Oh, the enemy must be wanting us to, you know, not wanting that message to get out. 
A car breaks down on the side of the road and we miss an appointment. Oh, the enemy, he must be... Come on, folks. Do you not see that whatever the enemy might or might not be doing, it is irrelevant under the sovereign care of our God. It's more important to ask the question when something goes wrong, when something breaks down, when you're hindered, when you don't get what you think you want, <laughs> what, you, what you think you ought to be doing, when, when something hinders you or trips you up, the more important question to ask is not what's the devil up to, but what is God up to? He's doing something in your troubles, in your frustrations, when things don't go as you plan it. That doesn't mean it's not going according to God's plan. That just means it's not going according to your plan. And who cares about that at the end of the day? We've got to put the devil in his proper place. He is described like, like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. That's just a comparison, folks. It's just to say that he's a a lion who's roaring and threatening. He's making a lot of noise seeking whom he might devour. But the text does not say that he can actually take a bite out of your leg. The text does not say that he can actually eat you or destroy you. It simply says, know what he's about, take him seriously, but get your head focused back on the Lord Jesus. He's the lion tamer. He's got the lion on a leash. He always has. And so get this, folks. Get this. We sang Luther's famous hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we sang about having the right man on our side. But in the third stanza, we sang the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What is that one little word? Martin Luther identifies the word he was thinking of when he composed that song in one of his other writings. That one little word that defeats the devil, according to Luther, is liar. Liar. You gotta say it with that tone. Liar! When he seeks to deceive us with his blatant lies, we remember that he's a liar and we believe the truth. When he seeks to tempt us to sin, we remember that he is a liar. And the promises held out in sin are false. And we run to Jesus for joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. When he afflicts our bodies with pain and disease, we remember that he is a liar. And that pain is not punishment from our loving Heavenly Father. And we run to Jesus for comfort and the strength to endure. Yes, Satan is out there. Yes, Satan is and his forces, if you will, can tempt us. They can deceive us and they can even afflict us even to the point of physical death. And Jesus says none of that counts as touching us. Because whatever the devil might do to you or his forces, Jesus is using it for your good. Jesus is using it for the accomplishment of His glorious purposes, including the completion of the mission. All of it. Every bit of it. Every temptation is a test from the Lord, an opportunity for obedience. Every lie that's presented to you is an opportunity for you to believe the truth 
And every affliction in your body is an opportunity for you to trust the Lord with the care of your body and with the pain that you're experiencing. Hard words. But the promises of God in these scriptures are just glorious. And they can be day by day, moment by moment, really helpful. Satan can't touch God's children. A sixth truth. The sheep will heed the shepherd's voice. John, back to John 10 and the Good Shepherd discourse. John 10, 3. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Skip down a few verses to verse 16. Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is describing the sheep pen, again, using a metaphor here, the sheep pen, and he's describing this fold. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jewish people. And he says, I have sheep that are not among this sheepfold. They're not a part of this sheepfold. He's talking about Gentiles here. So he's looking out, and he's saying, I have other sheep that are from the nations. And I must bring them also. And the way that he brings those sheep in is through the proclamation of the gospel, what we call missions to all the nations. And so as we go out and as we proclaim the gospel, Jesus is bringing the sheep in to the sheepfold. One sheepfold, one shepherd. The sheep will heed the shepherd's voice. That is a promise. Those who are identified as Jesus' sheep will heed His voice. They will respond to the proclamation of the gospel with faith and repentance. That's what we're talking about here. A seventh truth. Jesus can't lose the gift from His Father. And we got to understand here, that we're looking at different metaphors, different images that the New Testament gives us for salvation. And at this point, we're looking at the church... The sheep, God's people, are being depicted as a present, a gift that the Father is giving to the Son. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Get the picture. Think about your own life. You get presents sometimes. You receive presents. What do you do with those presents? Well, you might make good use of them for a little while and then chuck them. Or you might look at it and say, I don't really want this, and you give it to somebody else. Or you might sell it on eBay. Or you might be real rude and give it back to the person who gave it to you. Or you might lose it by accident. Jesus doesn't do any of those things to the gift he receives from his Father. He can't, in fact, lose it, break it, give it away. Jesus doesn't re-gift the gift that he received from his father. He doesn't give it away, he doesn't sell it, and he doesn't break it or let it get broken. All that the father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Skip down a couple of verses to verses 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the picture is 
those who believe in Jesus throughout history are being depicted as a collective gift. And what Jesus is saying here is that gift will be complete. It will not be missing a piece. It will not be missing the battery so that it doesn't work right. It will not be broken or chipped off. It will not be lost. It will be complete. And he will receive it and he will make it better. He receives the gift of sinners from his father. That seems like a lousy gift. (laughs) But in Jesus' hands, it's not a lousy gift. Because he takes what he's given and he promises to make it better. And ultimately to resurrect it on the last day. And not just it as a collective corporate whole, but each individual who comes to believe in the Lord Jesus. The promise is, I will resurrect them on the last day. This gift that's being made up throughout history and throughout the world. And so the work of missions is about bringing this gift to its whole completion. And Jesus is saying, believers are ultimately a gift from the Father to the Son. And again, it's a metaphor. But the reality is, those whom the Father gives to the Son cannot be lost. And again, it goes back to Jesus' keeping power. Jesus can't lose the gift from his Father. An eighth truth, and again, we're switching metaphors here. Jesus' purchase is non-refundable. So if the previous metaphor was believers are a gift given by the Father, here the metaphor is of purchase, ransom, redemption. That language is prevalent throughout Scripture. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they, that is the four living creatures and the 24 elders, sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here, the collective body of individual believers from all of history are being pictured as a purchase. The language of ransom and redemption in the Bible is very particular and very specific. Here, you have ransomed people by your blood. Jesus' death was a purchase. He paid a price. And that price was to buy something. Jesus is not like me, or maybe some of you who've had this experience. I can remember at least one occasion, maybe two in my past, where I went to the grocery store, and I collected my groceries from the store, took them to the checkout line, paid the person at the checkout counter, packed up my groceries, got in the car, only to realize I'd left something behind. Went all the way home, realized I was missing the eggs, had to drive back to the store, hoping that they turned them into customer service and they knew that those belonged to me because I bought them and I paid for them. Jesus is not like that. What he buys, he takes home. What he buys, he takes home. And his purchase is non-refundable. He's never going to try to take back and say, would you take this back, please? I bought this and I don't like it very much. And he's never going to try to trade it in for a better model. What he buys, he brings home. Ransom and redemption language in the scriptures is always specific. It's always about, it's usually in the language of the slave market. So that a person goes to the slave market and says, I want that slave to be set free. And so here's some money, set that slave free. 
It's never, here's some money. The next slave that comes along and maybe wants to be set free, set that one free. No, it's always specific. I want that slave free. And so I pay this money for that slave to be free. Ransom and redemption is always about a specific purchase in the Bible. And so it is here. Jesus' death purchased people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And so we send missionaries. We go to every nation, every tribe, every language, and we proclaim the gospel because that's how God brings the purchase home. And so the purchase is non-refundable. A ninth truth. Jesus' resurrection guarantees success. 1 Corinthians 15 is the famous resurrection chapter where Paul really zooms in on the necessity, the absolute necessity of Jesus' resurrection and to ground the promise of our future resurrection. And after he discusses all of that, he concludes the chapter in verse 58 with a big fat therefore. In light of Jesus' resurrection... And in light of the promise of the future resurrection of all of God's people, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your work, your effort is not empty. It doesn't do nothing. And I can say that knowing plenty of stories about missionaries who went out, spent years, maybe even a lifetime preaching in a particular place to a particular group of people with zero converts. And you could look at that story and you could say, meaningless, empty, vain. But that's not the truth. Usually there's a chapter right after that that tells how the next generation, others came, and watered the seed that was already planted. And then God gave the growth. The effort is not in vain because of Jesus' resurrection. A tenth promise, truth. Jesus' authority and presence guarantees the success of missions. Jesus' authority and presence guarantees the success of missions. First I want to look at John 17 briefly. John 17 is Jesus' famous prayer to his Father. So the Son is talking to the Father here. And he says in verse 2, John 17, 2, Since you have given me, the Son, him, given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus has been given universal authority over everybody on the planet. He has been given authority over all flesh. How does he exercise that authority? By giving eternal life to all whom you have given him. And he's going back to that gift language from John chapter 6. He has authority over all flesh. And he gives eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. That's how he exercises authority. And what that means for us is that we should never look at a human being and say, that person can't be saved. That person is beyond hope. Jesus has authority over all flesh. And so he has the ability to give eternal life to whomever he will. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission hones in here as well. Familiar words, we often go here, and we should, 
Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command comes in the middle of two glorious statements, and those two statements are meant to ground the command and fuel our obedience to it. The first is... All authority has been given to Jesus, not to us. This is different than what we see earlier in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 12. In Matthew 10, he names the 12 as apostles, and he sends them out, and he gives them authority. He delegates his authority to them so that they can cast out demons, heal the sick, and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And they go out and do that. What's Jesus doing while they're doing that? He's doing the same thing somewhere else. That's different than what he does for all of his followers here in the Great Commission. It's no longer him sending the disciples out and he's not going with them. He delegates authority to him. But as far as I can tell from the scriptures, that, delega- that, o- that delegated authority never gets redelegated, never gets passed on to the next generation. We don't have this kind of authority as Christians. Instead, we have something better. Jesus promises His authority, His universal authority, guarantees the success of us going and making disciples. But it's not just His authority, it's that tail-end promise at the end. I will be with you always. So no longer, no longer does Jesus just send the disciples out while He's elsewhere doing something else. Instead, He goes with us. Everywhere. All the time. He lives in us by His Holy Spirit. And so He sends us out. Go Therefore, to all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, and I'm going with you. I'm not sending you out and I'm over here doing something else. I'm going with you. So that when someone responds to the gospel, when someone believes the truth of the gospel and repents of their sins, Jesus is right there exercising His divine authority over that person so that they respond with faith. He's giving them that gift in that moment. It's not because of the persuasiveness of your message. I hope you don't believe that. And that gives me great comfort because it means I don't have to get it right. I don't have to figure out the best way to make sure that I'm saying all the right words at the right time in the right tone, because I'm sure I don't. And it doesn't minimize my responsibility to do the best I can. But the best I can is not enough to save sinners. The best I can is not enough to complete, accomplish the impossible mission. The best I can is not sufficient to open blind eyes and to set the captives free. So fortunately, it's not about me. So how do we move from mission impossible to mission accomplished? What does it look like? What is making disciples? It's opening the eyes of the blind. It's the impossible mission Jesus has given to us, to his followers, to his church. We'll close with a quick review of 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, through 6, where we learn what happens to a spiritually blind sinner when he receives sight, when spiritually blind eyes are opened. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, 
who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul first describes the situation of every human being on the face of the planet who hasn't begun to trust Jesus. Satan keeps people blinded, preventing them from seeing the light. What light? The glory of Christ revealed in the gospel. In verse 5, he turns to preaching. Preaching what? Preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. Why? It seems that the remedy for the blindness described in verse 4 is preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. How does that work? Verse 6 points to God as the primary mover, the decisive actor. God shines the light in the heart. He overcomes the darkness. If you keep verses 5 and 6 together, you can see that God shines this light through our preaching of the gospel message. That is God's way of saving sinners. Always has been, always will be. The impossible mission of Paul was to open the eyes of the blind. How was he to pursue this mission? By preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. By telling people who Jesus really is, who who Jesus really is, what he's like, and what he's done. God is the one who actually turns the lights on. John Piper has said, the Holy Spirit never opens the eyes of the heart until there is gospel truth in the mind to believe. That's our job. We put the truth of Christ into a person's mind with a testimony. We pray for the miracle of spiritual sight for the blind, and God in His time and in His way says, let there be light. Pray and preach. And don't let the word preach intimidate you or lead you to think that we're only talking about what pastors or missionaries do. Simply talk about Jesus all the time. We've gotten too comfortable, I think, using vaguely religious language. We say things like, have a blessed day. Why not say, may Jesus bless you today? Or instead of saying, I got saved... Why not say, Jesus saved me? Or instead of, I'll pray for you, why not say, I'll ask Jesus to help you? We need to get used to speaking of Jesus, specifically, in our normal, everyday conversations. Let's get to the point where we're as as comfortable referring to Jesus by name as we are referring to our spouses or our kids by name in our conversations. That's the mission. Talk about Jesus. Here, there, and everywhere. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these truths. We pray that they would do the job that you have intended them to do, to motivate and fuel us to do the job. We want to see in our own day Mission accomplished. Would you bring it to pass? Thank you, Father, that your power and your son's power is the definitive, decisive aspect of the success of the mission. It's not up to us. It's not dependent on us. We're too weak, too frail, too limited, and too sinful still. So thank you that you overcome our limitations. You use us in spite of us. And you bring glory and honor to your own name so that all will bow the knee 
to Jesus one day. It's all about Him and not about us. Help us to keep that perspective day by day. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. If you'll hang tight for just a moment, we've got a couple of announcements.